My name is Jake Thompson, your Chief Encouragement Officer, and this is the Compete Everyday Podcast, a show designed to encourage and equip you with the tools to build a winning mindset so you can build your winning life. Text PODCAST to 972-945-9113 to join our Morning Motivation Club and visit CompeteEveryday.com for past podcast episodes and to learn more about our resources and gear for ambitious people who are ready to start winning. Welcome to the show. How would you respond if you spent close to a decade chasing your dream? Still were active in it, still were around it, close enough to taste it, and then you made a decision that ultimately cost you that dream, that changed the rest of the course of your life. Would you become bitter? Would you become a victim? Or would you use that rock bottom moment to become a stepping stone to add value and give back? That is the story of today's guest, Brandon Puffer. You're going to hear how he went, in his own words, from the bullpen to the state pen, and now what he's doing to impact and influence the next generation of baseball players here in Texas. My name is Jake Thompson. I'm your Chief Encouragement Officer, and I'm so excited you're here for today's inspirational episode and interview with my new friend, Brandon. As we dive into the show, I want to encourage you with two easy ways to support the show. Head on over to CompeteEveryday.com. Use the code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get 15% off any order. You can grab a copy of my book. You can pick up a shirt. Or heck, you can grab one of our new Shirt of the Month Club memberships as well. And we will send you a fresh shirt, wristband, sticker, and some extra gear every single month all year long. You'll also get access to our daily morning motivation club and a few other things just for being a member. So head on over to competeeveryday.com. Use the code podcast to get 15% off. The other easy way to support the show, just share this episode. If you know somebody that's struggling through some hard times, if you know somebody that's living in the pain and heartbreak of a disappointing choice they made and they wonder if they've got a way back, if they got a way to grow. I want to encourage you to share today's episode with Brandon after you listen to it, to give them some encouragement, to remind them that their story's not done yet, that their opportunities are still ahead of them, that life is not over, but they determine what they do with the rest of it. So use this episode as an easy way to encourage them. Now, Let's get into today's show, and I'm excited to introduce you to former Major League Baseball player and current coach of the Texas GPS Baseball, Brandon Puffer. Hey, thank you, Jake. So great to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to this because you have quite the story. I want to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Gavin Wright, uh, for this connection and just facilitating today's convo because... I think there's a lot of inspiration and in kind of that power of redemption in your story. And, and so I want to take people back. You were a pretty good baseball player growing up. Tell, yeah. tell me about, tell me about your, uh, your early, early playing days. Like what's one of the first baseball memories you, you have of playing the game? Oh man, it goes all the way back. I, uh, I was, I, I first started, I grew up in Southern California, a little town called Mission Viejo and uh, North Mission Viejo Little League is where we started. And, so many great memories from that. I mean, the very first one, um, my dad will continue to remind us to this day, we went 22 and 0 as the, I think they call it the minor C Tigers, which is basically just the lowest level of Little League there is. And so he, he still takes quite a bit of credit for being the skipper of that team. And I was able to be on the team just because he was the coach. I was about a year younger and 
kind of held my own. So he was like, hey, you know, you're pretty good at this thing. So let's, let's keep going. And so many fond memories at those little league fields all the way up until high school. We continued in the same little league right there. All our games were played a little different than now where you travel around and do the thing. But so, man, little league, my parents volunteered. Me and my brother were there all day. And I mean, I remember some of the game highlights. Some of it was pretty cool. But I just remember being around the families and little league and all that good stuff. And man, every now and then, Jake, my, my screen does that. I'm good. I'm not having a seizure or anything. But it, there you go. Just kind of, I don't You're know good. what it is. But, You're good. Yeah, well, we can edit that out. No big deal. Uh, okay. So you played a lot of little league ball growing up. You were pretty good. And, and I'll say good because you got drafted uh, coming out of high school by the twins, right? Yeah, that's correct. You got drafted by the twins my senior year. What's, what's that like being 18 years old, getting picked up by a pro team and knowing like you're going to get a shot to really pursue your dream? And it's awesome. It really is. I mean, it was a very proud moment. And um, I always kind of share that they had kind of announced it over the high school intercom because we didn't have social media and cell phones and things of that nature. So yeah, for that day, you're kind of feeling on top of the world and, and not knowing as a young 18 year old what was ahead. Um, it was just like, hey, I've made it right. <laughs> knowing now that that's not necessarily the case. But it was a cool step in getting drafted out of high school. And then you went from almost coast to coast, right? California to Fort Myers, Florida. I did. I did. I uh, graduated high school. The day after we had our grad night, I left to Fort Myers, Florida. I got on a plane in California, 18 years old, feeling pretty good about myself and uh, was not nearly emotionally ready or mentally ready. But uh, yeah, man, they threw me into that pit out in rookie ball with a bunch of other 18 year olds that were also not ready. So it was quite an experience. Yeah. So uh, let's talk, let's talk about that. Cause baseball, what I love is, is a couple of things. One, it's about managed failure. Like you're going to have bad days and you're going to have failure out there and you're going to do it in front of a lot of people. Whereas a lot of us, you know, listening, you fail at something, you mess up. Not many people know about it. It's not out there, but you're doing it with ballparks full of people watching you. And, and especially at 18, 19, when you were, I, I would say sometimes we can be driven by an immaturity and an ego gets in the way of that. How did you handle the adjustments going from high school ball to that rookie ball? knowing there's always learning curves to that next level. And how were you able to maintain the continual pursuit of getting better versus getting caught, I would say, complacent that you, quote, made it because you got drafted? Yeah, Jake, honestly, great question. And I didn't handle it very well at all, especially in terms of, like I mentioned, the emotional, the mental aspect of it. Um, kind of paralleling my life, you know, being talented and gifted at baseball, kind of coming up, I also had you know, a lot of addiction in my family, which uh, I certainly picked up. Um, so for lack of a better term, those demons that I was fighting. And so when I got out on my own with all this freedom and um, didn't really have a strong backbone or didn't know what to do, I just didn't handle it well. So on the field, I was in my happy place, right? I, I was out with the guys, you know, in the locker room, clubhouse, on the field, great. And then every time I had downtime, I just didn't handle it well. My, my off-field habits were not good. I was uh, essentially, you know, I had a great opportunity that so many people would relish, and I just wasn't, um, I wasn't taking it seriously as I needed to. Um, I would kind of battle that through my whole career, get better at times and worse at times, but especially early on, I mean, I treated it more like a, a, a playground than a, um, you know, an opportunity or a job that I had, and, I, and, I, and it definitely affected me early on. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your, your minor league career. Cause I know it took a little while before that first call up, you played some independent ball for fans listening that maybe aren't as familiar with baseball. It's not like the other sports where you get drafted and like day one, you're at the top. 
baseball, you got to work through rookie ball and a ball and multiple single a double a triple a to get to usually get a shot up there. And, and that can take years in your, your case, it took years. Some guys you probably played with were lifers in the minors as well. And so take us through a little bit of that journey, working your way up to that first call up and how, you know, going on almost a decade before you got a shot at the show, how you still, despite kind of everything going on outside of baseball in your life, you still had hope that I'll still maybe get a shot at the bigs and I'll keep chasing it for now. Yeah, man, it just, it, it brings a smile on my face just thinking about that. And I actually just got the chills thinking about that because those are the great memories, man, that the, you know, for, you know, quote unquote, the grind of the minor leagues. Um, and I think the mindset was just, this is what I've dreamed about my entire life. There's nothing I'd rather be doing. And so, yeah, when it was tough or a long bus ride or you're not pitching well or you're missing your family, I mean, all those things are very real. You certainly go through all those emotions um, in the minor leagues. It was just a, a, I guess, a perseverance mindset of like, this is a war of attrition. There's a lot of good athletes here. There's a lot of good players, but they're going to basically have to just rip the uniform off of me. I mean, literally until every single team says, nope, you're not good enough. I'm going to stick with this thing. And so several teams said that I got released about four or five times, um, went to independent ball before I ever made it, as you said, and then, um, you know, changed some, some habits off the field. Um, you know, my faith became very important to me. So I was more prepared. I dropped my arm slot a little bit. So being open and willing to make adjustments when it's like, Hey, you're, you're, you're okay, but you're, you're not probably good enough to make it where you're trying to go. So let me ask you that. Let me ask you, because changing your techniques, a big deal. Uh, especially because it's what you're used to and probably done most of your career. Was there a manager that started to draw that out? Was it, was it you of like, "Mm, I'm still not where I want to be. What created that transition to just be open to kind of set aside the ego of what I've always done to try something new to get to where I want to go. Yeah, I I can tell you exactly. It was a pitching coach. His name is Andre Rabone. Never pitched in the big leagues. He was a lifer, Mexico, pitched a little bit everywhere, had all kinds of arm angles just an awesome man. And I was in Charleston, West Virginia, 1998. I was on my third organization. I'd been released by the first two and I was struggling again. And um, so, yeah, he basically what happened was Jake is I, my arm was killing me. I had bicep tendonitis from throwing over the top and I was just flipping balls in sidearm uh, as we were shagging batting practice. And he came wobbling out. He had a fake hip. So I was, <laughs> we still talk to this day, but he came and his little waddle out. And I'm like, Oh man, he's coming my way. And Andre said, you know, Puff, you know what? Hey, what are you doing? Why are you throwing like that? I said, man, my arm hurts. You ever think of pitching that way? Oh, Dre, I just, I can't get it in right now. I can't get my arm on top. So he confided in me and said, Hey, uh, last week, one of my buddies had just been released off the team. And um, that's always a bummer. And he said, you know, your name came up in the conversation. And so it's like, if you're an A-ball and, you know, by this time, you're probably about 24 years old, you're still an A-ball and you about got released for the third time. Hopefully you're humble enough to go, okay, what I'm doing isn't quite working. It worked to get here. And I think that's what holds you back, right? You're like, well, this is what got me here. But then, okay, now we got to adjust and evolve. And, and so I said, Dre, I'm open. You know, you, you tell me what you want me to do. And we, uh, we threw a little bullpen on the side the next day. Let my arm settle down a little bit. And literally the next game, I asked him, I said, so if you guys put me in the game, what am I doing? He goes, drop it down. And so I learned on the fly in the middle of an A-ball season. And fortunately, it was a little more effective for me. It actually, my arm responded better that way. And so, yeah, I mean, had I not dropped my arm angle, got 10 more years after that, um, I would have been, I would have been done pretty shortly after that. So that was a great break for me. 
I was about to say, not only that, but it's interesting. You were throwing it a specific way because of injury and your, your shoulder flared up. And that ended up being the way that got you to that next level. Yeah. I, I'm curious uh, on a couple of things before we get to kind of that first call up is you've, you've changed your technique. You're working through this process, but as you're going, you're, it's a battle of attrition, but guys you've built relationships with, you see them fade away, but you see them out of the game. How did you, one, I would say, continue to stay focused and not get too down as you watch people you'd built relationships with lose their opportunities? Yeah, I think similar to, to the answer that I had for you previously was just I had a set mindset um, going into it that, again, I, I was just not going anything that I could control. That's what I was going to focus on. And I, I, had a, I had a, you know, my mom and dad they were very positive, very encouraging um, you know, my mom was a triathlete. I watched her, you know, do a lot to sacrifice around the family and still get her training in and things of that nature. I think some of those seeds were planted of um, just like, hey, you know, you got you to gotta do some things you don't want to do to get where you want to go. And so as that happened, you know, I would just, you know, thank God you keep in touch with your teammates and build relationships. But I would honestly just have to go, OK, you know, that stinks, but I still have a job to do and, and I need to get to work. And so sometimes that would even you know, you take things for granted occasionally. So when something like that would happen, you go, oh, man, you know, we're, we're in our little groove here thinking everything's good. And at any moment, they can tap you on the shoulder and it's all over. So let's give everything we have every day for that opportunity. Yeah, I was about to say, that's a frequent wake up call to the uh, scarcity of those opportunities. So flashing forward, it's April of 2002. You're in AAA, I believe, with the Astros when you get a chance to get called up. And I read in another interview, like you're walking into the clubhouse and at that time it's, it's bags, it's Biggio, it's household names for those of us that grew up here in Texas playing ball. And all I can think about is, is a lot of our listeners walking into certain venues or arenas and feeling like complete imposter syndrome of like, I don't know if I belong here and they're going to find me out. And then in the same sense as people walk in, walk into those places, they're like, Heck yeah, this is my moment. I've earned to be here. Were you more of like, holy crap, I made it, or I hope they don't find out like they made a mistake pulling me up? Like, where where did you fall in that experience? Because I can imagine after eight years of trying to get there, finally stepping in, it can be a little bit of an overwhelming experience, especially when you've got vets that are known names in the game there. Yeah, um, I definitely lean more towards holy crap, I'm here, but do I belong here? Imposter syndrome, 100%. Um, you know, and, and those guys were great. They were super welcoming. They did everything they could do. But in my own mind, getting over the old the battle of my own mind was the hardest yeah. part. And I'll be honest with you, Jake, I don't know if many people uh, admit this because we're all just such tough guys and I'm coaching guys to be mentally strong and you're always better than everybody. And it's like, man, I never felt like I belonged there. I never did. I got parts of a few, um, three or four years, whatever it is. And it was to the point where I would face guys in the big leagues that I had just faced in AAA previously, and I would, I would attack them differently because of the stadium, because I'm on TV, because the guys around me, I'm a huge fan of baseball. So I remember me and my dad being in the living room and a reliever messes up a game and my dad's going crazy. And I'm like, man, I don't want to be that guy to the city of Houston or whatever. And like all these thoughts that you can't entertain if you're going to compete. I'm yeah. entertaining. So I had to learn pretty quickly how to replace those thoughts with more positive ones and it improved, but I never got to the point where I just felt super comfortable to be the clubhouse. Never did. Okay. Uh, I'm curious. Cause you bounced around to a handful of clubhouses. You saw teams. I believe one of the years you were with the Red Sox during their historic run. 
Tell me what stood out about some of those locker rooms and teams you were in that were ended up making history or were winning franchises or programs that you maybe didn't see in other places that stuck with you. Yeah, I think, and, and, and so, you know, with the Red Sox, it was extremely brief. <laughs> it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, so not a whole lot of, uh, not a whole lot of takeaways. I had a few funny stories with, of Manny and, and Pedro and a few, I mean, I guess a lot happened for a day and a half, but I was there very briefly. But in general, it's just culture, right? It's just, you step in Fenway Park, you, you put the Red Sox uniform. I'm a diehard Dodger fan. That's how I grew up. And I think they have the same culture, but it's like, you know what? And Houston, it was, it was early. They were just starting to get good, starting building. And I was in the Padres organization and the Giants. There was something about the Red Sox culture that immediately you're like, I've got to step up everything I'm doing because there's another standard here, right? And it, I guess it's just from the history and all the guys who have kind of graced that clubhouse. Um, but yeah, you just noticed it immediately, um, just the history of that. And so in all of them, you know, you had your core group of guys and in any clubhouse, you could kind of go in locker room and you got your same guys. You got your loose guys that are clowning around. You got that uptight. You know, you got kind of find your space who you want to be around. But you definitely saw a standard that was raised um, for, for folks like the guys that were in that clubhouse, the Red Sox that ended up winning that World Series. That's always interesting because you watch it from the outside and they looked like obviously they were on paper. They were the complete opposite of the Yankees in terms of like not clean cut. Uh, they were a lot, looked like a lot more playful out on the field versus all serious business. But hearing that, like you walked in and there was a different standard of excellence, I think it's important for those, for our leaders listening that a high standard of excellence doesn't mean no nonsense or no fun, just means no nonsense. Right. Like have fun, but don't lower the standards. Yeah, they were loose. They certainly were loose. I mean, like I said, I was there a day and a half in the locker room and I could tell you two or three stories of hilarious things that were like, Wow, what? I mean, they were they were funny and they were loose, but then they understood what it was to to you know flip that switch for lack of a better term, and it's time to get out there and compete for a city and a fan base that is you know has a lot of history. So again, kind of there's a pressure to that, but for the guys who rise up and and, and own that, it really elevated their play. I think. Yeah, it absolutely has, and and does for all of those groups. What I'm curious now is I want to shift gears just a little bit. Toward the end of your career, you spent time as we laughed off air here in Frisco, part of the Rough Riders. Uh, you then got promoted to AAA in Oklahoma, and then life changed dramatically for you. And so walk some of our listeners through that, because I think we've been having fun talking baseball, but the real power in your story is kind of what happened in that 2008 fall and the redemptive story after that. Oh, absolutely, Jake. So um yeah, I got I got invited by the Rangers in 2007 to Frisco to be kind of like a player coach. I always kind of uh, compare it to the Bull Durham, you know, Crash Davis. You kind of old guy, had a little big league time. Yep. Man, they had all these minor leaguers. I don't know if you were in Frisco at the time, but it was Derek Holland, Chris Davis, Ellis Andrews, all these dudes. And they're like, hey, we want you to go and just encourage them, show them how to be a professional, which is a little bit of irony with where we're going. But, you know, I did. I went and I, I just – Man, I relished that role. I loved it. So in 08, they invited me back. And the whole thing is you're going to get to keep pitching. You know, by chance, there's a miracle. Maybe you make it back to the big leagues. But for the most part, we're grooming you to be a coach. And it was understood. Um, and so 07, they invite me back. So absolutely, let's go. And, you know, during that time, I'd share with you earlier that I, I fought a lot of demons off the field. You know, um, I'm big in the mental health space now. or I'm not big in it, but I'm big in following it. I'd love to be big in it because it's super important to me because it was a battle for me. And, and you know, still have to be very intentional. Um, thank by the grace of God, I'm 15 years sober now. But at that time, I would battle those off the field moments when I had downtime. 
So fast forwarding to the end of 2008, what you're alluding to, the young guys have been begging me to go out with them. And I'm just like, guys, I'm here. To, I'm an FCA leader. I'm here to be a mentor to you guys. The last thing I'm going to do is go out and show you what a knucklehead I really am. But I would still kind of go out on my own and kind of live in a little bit of a double life. I still didn't have it together, but I wanted them to think I had it together, which was a big mistake on my part. Instead of just being vulnerable and going, I'm struggling. I just put on the front and said, I got it going on. I'm the leader of this clubhouse, right? And so certainly uh, you talked about some exciting dates for me. I, I, as soon as you said April 17th, I started smiling when I got called up. But it's like September 13th was a little different for me. Um, it, it was the exact same as any other day I'd ever had. I'm a routine guy. I got up, got to the ballpark, same time, the whole deal. But I, I, I made a decision on the way that I was going to go out with the guys that night. It was a compromise in my beliefs, um, compromise in, the, in what I knew was best. But I heard a small, still voice even say like, hey, you know, don't do that. It's not a good idea. Ah, put that to the side. And I went in, told the guys, they set up the whole scenario. Here we go. Puff's going out with us, you know, type deal. And man, I went out and I, I made a bunch of bad decisions in terms of how much I drank. I blacked out and I ended up waking up September 14th um, in an orange jumpsuit in jail, not too far from where you're sitting probably right now in the McKinney County Jail. And um, I had committed a felony that I will go into as much detail or not as you want to do based on your listeners. But at the end of the day, that, that would lead me to a five-year uh, prison sentence. Obviously ended my career. Uh, lost everything I had. I don't say that as like a woe is me just because, hey, what can one choice do in your life? You've just been in the big leagues. You've done all these things and now you've got nothing. And so I spent three and a half years in prison serving that five-year sentence. I got a little early um, on parole and it completely flipped my life upside down and for the better now because I, I changed my perspectives. You mentioned humility. I didn't have it in my life. I needed it. Um, and yeah, it just, it just totally opened up a whole new side of, of kind of more of a selfless life and more of, Hey, you're not just here to be a baseball player. And it's all about you, 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 which that was my mentality. You're here for a whole nother reason. I only elevated and I'm speaking my face important to me. I'm, I'm hearing God say, I only elevated you so you could, you know, share my word, not for you. And so I kind of had to be stripped away of everything to realize that and kind of rebuild from there as a surrendered man of God going, okay, what's next? You know, what, what do you have for me next? So let, let's talk about that. I'm curious a little bit, you know, and I'm familiar, I'm sure you are Damon West coffee bean uh, in his boy, story. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm curious in moments like that, when you're, you're put in there and pretty much everything you thought, even that you were still in minor leagues, you still thought you had a career in baseball at the professional level, everything kind of taken away, you can grow very bitter you can go into that victim mentality or you can go the opposite direction. And so when you went in, was there a transition process to where you kind of went from woe is me to how am I going to take advantage of, of this new direction? Or what was that process? Because I can't imagine it was an easy one mentally to get through and work through to accept what the reality was. And now the changes of what has to be or could be going forward. Yeah, all great questions, Jake. I um I had nine months out. So when I got arrested that day, uh, I didn't tell anybody except the man who bailed me out. And he, I called him. I said, he, what are you doing here? Like, how'd you know I was here? He said, man, you called me last night. I was hoping you were kidding, but I came to check. And thank goodness I came. Um, and he's actually the Rangers clubhouse manager now. Awesome guy. We, we're still in touch. And uh, he, he did that. I, I looked at the paperwork and I was like, man, what in the heck? Like, what, what's going on here? So 
thinking all along, Jake, that this is still going to be like, hey, you made a stupid decision. It's going to be swept under the rug. There's two more days in the season. I didn't tell anybody in Frisco. I went home, finished the season, got word that, hey, they were picking this up. It's a little more serious than you thought it was. And so from that point on, I had nine months before I would go to a trial up there in McKinney. I'd go to trial. I had nine months to kind of really start preparing. And you were you just at home? Like, what was it? Where were you in that process? I was just at home here in Round Rock, Texas. Um, teams would call and, you know, cause it's off season. I said, man, I, I don't know where my life's going to be. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. So I took some odd jobs and just prepared. And so that was the time where it was like, please get me out of this. My prayers were like, please don't let me go to prison. Please. I'll, I'll be a good boy. You know, those prayers. And then when I came out of the, when I came in the trial, this is a five-year sentence to the Texas department of criminal justice. I said, can I go say bye to my dad? Nope. Put me in cuffs, took me to a side cell. Um, when the, when the, bars shut on that cell and they took everything from me is when I just went, okay, different prayer, not get me out of this, not whatever, surrendered, whatever you have me to do from this point forward. And I took that mentality. I didn't know Damon's message at the time. Uh, He came and shared our organization. I was so blessed to have him out and we're good buddies, but I fortunately chose right then to be a coffee bean. Um, And everybody told me, you're going to have to be an egg. You have to get hard and you're going to have to ride with your race and join a gang. And I'm like, nah, I'm not doing any of that. And I'm also not a soft guy. Fortunately, I, I was not raised that way. So I'm like, I'm not gonna be taken advantage of, but I'm going to respect everybody. I'm going to ride with God. I'm going to work on myself, my cognitive intervention, all these things and figure out how I can be a better man moving forward. Now, of course there were hard times and it was a mental battle and it was tough and you just had to lean in. I had to lean into my faith and I had a, a great support system. Um, but I think where it really hit me, Jake, is after nine months in prison, I saw parole and I'm thinking, oh man, I, I got Nolan Ryan wrote me a, a letter of recommendation and all these guys and I'm getting out of this thing, right? I'll see you guys later type deal. And they said, uh, you got a two year set off. Uh, so excuse me, what does that mean? So that means we'll see you again in two years. Basically no chance you're going anywhere for two more years at least. And so right then I was like, this is my new normal and I need to have most positive effect I can have while I'm in here. So that's what I tried to do. And I had some good opportunities to hopefully be a positive influence to some folks. And, and many of them were very positive influences to me as well. Um, you know, I, I learned there's some great men with great talents and gifts and intelligence in prison that just made a really bad choice. And 99% of the time, it's because they were under, you know, the influence of drugs or alcohol, not in their, not in their right mind. And that's unfortunate. Some of those guys that I met are still in there and they're not going to probably ever get out. So really powerful on how that one decision can change everything. Yeah, it, it sure can. And so eventually you got out on parole. You had a chance to kind of start life over. But at the same time, it probably feels like you've got this big kind of mark stain on you. I'd say it's scarlet letter, even though it's a, a very different one. How was that? Because like, I think, you know, with a lot of people, like something happens to us and and obviously not to the degree of that, but people are always worried of what other people are going to think of them coming out. And, you know, I am not going to go anywhere. I'm going to stay tucked away. I'm not going to be involved in anything. I'm just going to avoid giving anyone a chance to think anything about me. You've now gotten very involved uh, in the baseball scene in, in Texas and, and down there in the Austin area, working with a number of groups. And so I'm really curious on your end, what were those first few weeks like after? Man, the, it, hard. It's been difficult, Jake, uh, to be honest. Obviously, I was just elated. I mean, my parents came and picked me up and it was just like, oh, but I mean, I was way behind on technology, on all these different things. I mean, there's all these funny jokes in my family. Now. <laughs> they, they yeah, because you were in it. What year? What years were you in? 
I was in like 09 to 11, 12, 13, I think. Okay. And, so and technology is like, changing faster and faster man, every year. Everything. And they'd still make fun of me for, I had this little flip phone that was my grandma. She passed away when I was in there. And so they're like, Hey, let's start with this. And I thought when you flipped it closed, it, it shut off and it didn't. So I would be on very important phone calls with like my new parole officer or, you know, whatever. And I'd be like, Oh, he sounds like a real jerk. And they're like, no, no, it's not off. And so all these little running jokes, they still talk about it. Uh, I'll never forget. We drove through Starbucks like immediately. And I was on the phone with my brother because he didn't, he couldn't come with them, but I was just happy to be able to call him. And I'll be honest with you, Jake, prison riots, the conditions, the crappy beds, the being treated like a dog, all those things stink, but not being able to just hug your family and talk to them when you want to is the worst part. 100%. And so I was just like texting and calling and I ordered my, uh, my Starbucks order and it was like some Java chip Frappuccino with mint, whatever. And he's like, dude, you pick, you, it's like riding a bike for you ordering coffee. <laughs> so he was just surprised that that happened, but man, it was very difficult. And back to your kind of original reason for the question, it was all the things you said. Like I would run into people and I would just assume they just know it's all over me. I just have to tell them, I just got out of prison. You know, I, I, I messed up. And then eventually you kind of work your way back into where, um, you know, you just start, some people show trust in you and you earn that back and, and you work your way to it. But it really starts with a change of behavior and humility. That's the thing I could say. I took a very humbling job actually at a baseball stadium as kind of a maintenance worker. You know, I was like, man, I'm back in baseball, kind of, <laughs> but, but I had to do some humbling work. And I think we're however many years out now. And like you said, redemption has been incredible. I read a tweet this morning, just this morning that somebody tweeted out about knowing who lives by you. And you'd be surprised how many people will have records, check everything. And that, I mean, really mean tweet, which I get, like, I have kids, I have a family. I always check. I want to know, but it really hurt me. I was like, man, but you also got to get to know the people and there's different circumstances. And I'm out here trying to, and, and it wasn't geared towards me. I don't even know the person. And I had a rough morning and my wife's like, are you okay? I'm like, just really hurt me. Like that. I still carry this, you know? And, and after all these years, so my point being, it's gotten so much better, but when you carry those titles, you know, convicted felon uh, to register all these different things, it's like, ah, it's hard, but it's part of the consequences and you just have to, I mean, I could never ask for more than what's been, what I've been able to do with this youth and high school nonprofit, this program with my record, you shouldn't be able to do that. So I think it's just all God first and then just a good support cast and people going, okay, we're willing to give a second chance if we see a change in behavior, right? If you're not humble, you're not owning your stuff, no one's going to look past that. You're going to be, you know what, you're going to be held down. But if you own it and you're humble and you move forward and try to use your story to encourage people, I've just been blown away at how, how much grace people can show. It's been absolutely amazing. Yeah. So, and I'm curious, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing now with GPS because I'm really interested in how that started because yeah. it it would take similar to you being a parent, like it would take parents being like, I don't know about this to let's yeah. give him a shot and people giving you that opportunity. That's exactly what it was, Jake. I was working at the Dell Diamond here in Round Rock, AAA affiliate for the Rangers. The Ryan family stood behind me. They said, hey, we don't have much for, of a job right now, but we can offer this. And this is great. I was pressure washing, staining, cleaning up, doing whatever they needed me to do and loving it, like every bit of it. And um, somebody asked me, they said, hey, you used to get pitching lessons, right? And uh, I think it was like the GM at the time, uh, George King. And he said, I got a, a parent that wants you to do a lesson with their kid. Immediately, what you just said, I was like, why would they want me to do it? Don't they know what I've done? Don't they know what I've been through? 
And I just kind of got over that and said, sure, I'd be happy to. And it went well and they wanted to do another one. And then that kind of word spread it. And so it was a little bit, a couple private lessons here and there. And then, um, and I, I ended up getting promoted there as a baseball outreach coordinator. Again, just them showing trust and faith was amazing because you're like, wow, they're willing to kind of do that and put, put me out there like that. And, and I built a, a team or two through them, ended up that they were so focused on the AAA team that this thing was taking on its whole new life of its own. Um, the guy who helped me start it, Brian Gordon, and I just took a leap of faith and started our own program and, and uh, just started with a, a team or two. And then we, you know, we've got great men that, that coach and lift them up like your boy Gavin. And um, they ended up going, hey, they're doing something special over here. Now, I am sure that there's been plenty of families that said, no way, we're not going over there. And I'm 100% sure because they tell me all the time that there are competitors that go, hey, you don't want to go play over there. Look that guy up. Look who's running that thing. So that's where I run into the most issues, to be honest with you, just someone feels a little threatened by our program and they just kind of throw that out there like, hey, and then they embellish on it a little more like, oh, you don't want to be over there. It's scary. And so that stinks. I mean, you know, it hurts and I, you know, but it is, again, it is what it is. It's, it's, it's on my head right now. And, and I could not ask for more though of, of what has been built in GPS and it's so much bigger than me. I mean, the men coaching or everything about it. So it's just all our coaches doing a great job. I just feel really fortunate to be a part of it. What, what do you enjoy most about coaching? Oh man, just that, uh, just that watching those, those young men like improve and get better and go through failure, but then come out on the other side and just the love that you build throughout a season, like lessons are cool. Um, but building with a team, I'm with a 14 U team right now, and I usually do the 17 U team. And in that case, it's most rewarding when they sign to go play in college or a couple have been drafted. You're just like, wow, I had a little tiny, it's all their ability. It's everything they do. Just a little piece in that. Even it's just encouraging them along is the most impressive. It's just the relationships with those kids, man. And they, they text me you know, every now and then, like either they're down or, you know, they've done something great and they shoot you a text. And just every time you're like, this is it. This is why we do it, man. This is the whole reason we do it. So super rewarding. It. Yeah. I love it. And you, you recently, I know at the end of 22 released your book about your story, right? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's called From the Bullpen to the State Pen. I actually came up with that title when I was in the state pen. And, you know, I had a whole bunch of journals that I took while I was in prison. And so it's some some excerpts from my journals kind of the growing up. And then, you know, I guess the lessons that I've learned in pursuing that big league dream, but even more so, you know, that fall from grace and hitting rock bottom and how you kind of recover from that. So really just hoping to encourage, you know, folks who have either made a really terrible decision and they carry the guilt and shame that, hey, there is life after this. I know it doesn't always feel like it because I, I felt that, but there can be life after this and here's what's helped me. Or those, especially those youngsters that aren't quite going down, they're heading down that path, but they haven't quite gone there. And it's like, hey, I had some warning signs before this. Yes, it was one bad night, but I, I, there were some warning signs in high school and other places. So let's pay attention to those and you don't have to go through what I went through. So it's been really cool. It's just kind of uh, another way to get my story out there and maybe a little broader um, spectrum and, and, you know, something for my family to have as well. I love it. I love it. And we've got links to not only your website, but the book in the show notes. So for anyone listening, all you got to do is click the link in the show notes to pick yourself up a copy. Brandon, man, I appreciate so incredibly you coming on the show and just being vulnerable enough to tell your story of, of the rise, the fall, and, and now the rise again of making an impact on others. So appreciate you taking the time to join the show. Oh, Jake, such an honor, man. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. To get in touch with the team, drop us an email to podcast at competeeveryday.com. And to find out more about our resources, content, and gear that will help you build that winning mindset so you better compete for your best life, visit competeeveryday.com.